Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I've never been expecting approval. It's nice if you get it, but you have to realize once you're past your first three or four albums, then no longer are you the bee's knees, you're no longer the the latest thing, and you've got to accept that you're going to get your share of ho-hum or even very negative reviews. It's, It's just the way things are. You know, if people are happy and they show their appreciation, then I'm delighted if that's the end result. But I don't, I don't expect it. It doesn't come with the territory just because you've sold a few million records. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, this week's show features a fascinating interview with Jethro Tull legend Ian Anderson. But before we get to him, I just want to say that it's been some week for Vintage Rock Pod and for the world of classic rock too. We have to mention the sad news that Meatloaf passed away on Thursday, age 74. Now, I had just literally released a tribute episode on Monday, paying respects and looking back and remembering the legends that passed away in 2021. So for another legendary figure to leave us so soon after was a real shame, wasn't it? Now, when I heard the news of Meatloaf's passing, I knew I had to do another special. He was that influential and Bat Out of Hell remains one of the biggest selling albums of all time. I quickly listened back to previous interviews, I made phone calls, sent emails, and chats with people in the UK and America followed, and the special tribute to Meatloaf episode was uploaded the same day. Now, it featured contributions from John Parr, who was given his big break by Meatloaf and then went on to have a worldwide hit with St. Elmo's Fire, of course. There was Ellen Foley as well, who sang the female vocals on the Bat Out of Hell album and uh, national UK radio presenter on Absolute Classic Rock, Claire Sturgis, joined me too. And it's also a big thanks to Stephanie Myers, Mike Norris and Joseph Kay for their contributions on the show as well. Now, I just want to read some comments that were shared by listeners on the Facebook page, the Vintage Rock Pod Facebook page, and messages that had been sent by email. Uh, Mark Beavers said, Bat out of hell and straight into heaven. Thank you, angelic man, for the love you've given. Poet, I met the man. Very lucky indeed, Mark. Uh, Denise Luscombe said, Still too young to go. Can't argue there. Um, A German media promoter said this. Can't be true. Marvin is dead. Damn. Was allowed to accompany him so many times job-wise. He was a workaholic. His voice, his pure passion for music are unmistakable. I can't believe it. My dear, rock on there in rocker heaven. You'll find many dear musicians, companions. You will never be forgotten. Lewis Doyle said he saw Meatloaf 11 times in concert. Bat Out of Hell was such a seminal album for him, it blew him away. He says he'd never heard anything like it before. It's a sad day. Rest in peace, Marvin. 
And uh, Troy Goff uh, emailed as well saying, Thank you for the tribute show. It was great to hear the stories of people meeting him. Meatloaf had a bad reputation, but I loved hearing that everyone had positive experiences with him. There'll never be another Meatloaf, that's for sure. Thank you very much for everyone getting in touch and and messaging and commenting over the last couple of days. If you've not given that episode a listen yet, or the tribute to the stars we lost in 2021 with special contributions on that show as well, then please do go back and check them out. Please also check out the social media pages too. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, that sort of thing, you know the deal, and you'll find all the details on there, and you can uh, join in with the community online as well. As for today's show then, well, it features an interview with Jethro Tull leader, the man behind the band for over 50 years, Ian Anderson. Jethro Tull's new album, The Zealot Gene, is officially released on Friday the 28th of January, so I managed to grab a quick interview with Ian just before Christmas to talk all about this new record. He dives into his songwriting process, which is a fascinating insight into the mind of a man who's been writing songs for, what, half a century? And not just any old songs as well, I mean songs on records that have sold over 60 million copies worldwide. That's the incredible footprint this band have left on the musical universe. Now, he's incredibly thorough in his working, and you're going to hear all about it soon, as well as news on the tours and concerts that will hopefully be going ahead this year as well. Now, usually I get a bit of time with a guest to chat about the band's histories and talk about some of the big stories from the careers, that sort of thing, as you will know if you're a regular listener. But he was pressed for time, and I appreciated the space that he made for me. And to be honest, it's always a pleasure to get the chance to speak with someone of Ian's calibre. So to provide a bit more Jethro Tull action, I also spoke with author Laura Shenton. She has a master's degree in music since 1900 from Liverpool Hope University. So she's really well placed to talk on the topic. She's written so many books on so many bands, including Deep Purple, Dire Straits, Kate Bush, Supertramp, Tears for Fears, The Stranglers, ELP, and many, many more, including a number of books already on Jethro Tull, with another impressive one soon to be released. So to talk about that and her love of Jethro Tull, let's hear from author Laura Shenton. Welcome to Vintage Rock Bud, Laura. Hello, it's nice to be here. Hello. Hello indeed. Hello indeed. Now, as I said, they've written a handful of books, haven't you, on Jethro Tull? So let's start with with why. Why Jethro Tull? What is it about them that, that, that made you want to write so much about them? Um, I do hold a bias. I do think they're a fantastic band. I'm a massive fan. But I promise you that they're all um, objective um, in their narrative. So when I write about any band, um, the objective is always to recall what happened rather than talk the reader through my opinion. Because really, my opinion doesn't matter. I'm just one of millions of fans. I just (laughs) happen to write about them. Um, So it's really important to write something that doesn't say oh yeah it's a great band you should think it's a great band too because obviously by letting go of that bias it allows me to provide something that's that's more substantiated substantiated (laughs) it's the afternoon you can tell um but yeah um i it's a pleasure to write about jethro Tull because i think when you're writing about any band that um you know, you really enjoy listening to, you're always going to find out more things um, because that's the nature of the research. Um, And it's as fun to write as I hope it is for for people to read about as well. And um, I don't think Jethro Tull have ever done a bad album. However, you're always going to have your favourites as any fan would. And, you know, it's always nice to compare and contrast what different albums meant 
for the band in their career. Absolutely. Now, to the, the, the non-Jethro Tull fans, they'll always be labelled as, um, I don't know, a folk band. I mean, my friend who likes classic rock, he isn't a fan of Tull, but he says, oh, it's that band where the guy stands on one leg and plays the flute. But th- there's much more to the band than just that, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I got into the band because um, when researching about Deep Purple ages ago, Richie Blackmore said that he was a big fan. He, he didn't tell me that. He's been saying it for decades. It's just that, um, you know, he Blackmore is into the whole kind of like modal scales and, you know, that's very typical um, in folk music. And I thought, oh, this this guy thinks they're great. I'll, I'll have a listen. And then I started listening to their albums and I was like, wow, amazing. And yeah, you're right. Um, you know, it is a very folk sounding band in the sense of the scales they use, the instrumentation they use. But also Jethro Tolkien sound quite heavy as well. So, you know, you've got um, Martin Barr's guitar solo um, in The Minstrel in the Gallery, um, the, the album's title track. And, you know, the start of some of the songs on Heavy Horses um, are quite sort of metal sounding. I mean, I'm, I'm using the term metal extremely loosely because it, it divides opinion. I mean, some people say deep purple and metal um but others are like oh no you can't call it metal it's more melodic than that so it's interesting how certain genres have like certain connotations so if somebody says folk i i think you know a person's initial impressions might be oh that's going to be a bit twee you know people sort of dressed up as elves and dancing around trees and stuff <laughs> but it's um it's not like that um melodically that there's a lot to be enjoyed i think it's the same with prog rock isn't it you know a lot of people think oh that is going to be long-winded and self-indulgent but you know some of it's really good and indeed jethro tull often get you know categorized under that umbrella Absolutely. And you mentioned um, Richie Blackmore there and Deep Purple and things like that. But they've also got an army of famous fans as well, likes of Nick Cave and Rush and Iron Maiden too. They've all they've all referenced, haven't they, Jethro Tull? Is, and they're all big fans of what they do and what Ian does and everything like that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, that's testament to how good Jethro Tull's output have been over the decades. I mean, there's always something you can learn from listening to their music. Um you know, even if you do so just for pleasure, you know, there's a lot of interesting ideas. I mean, the subject content of their albums was very different. I mean, while everybody, you know, how many people have written albums and songs about like love and relationships and all that kind of stuff. Um, and during that time, you know, Jeff Hotel have covered um, plays, horses, um, rural themes, you know, all the things that you wouldn't expect from rock music. And that's always a pleasure to listen to. Absolutely. And you talk about the 50-year career now for the band and 11 gold albums, five platinum albums, uh, sales in excess of 50, 16 million records as well. They're an absolutely incredible band and, and formidable in terms of the longevity. Um, but if we go back maybe 10 years or so, when Ian decided to declare an end to Jethro Tull, and, and that was much to the anger and disappointment and probably other words as well, and certainly shock as well to Martin Barr, who you'd mentioned, who had been with him for four decades or so, um, there doesn't seem to be much chance of them getting back together, despite it being so something that every kind of Toll fan would love to see happen, isn't it? Yeah, and I find it really fascinating because in any other career, in any other field, can you imagine if somebody said, oh, you know when you were in the office that day and um, you'd done that really great project with um, with someone else you worked with, can you go and work with them again? And you'd be thinking, what are you on about? I can't work with them again. It's 10 years. It's been 10 years. And it fascinates me how with music, there's a lot of fans have this expectation that, you know, colleagues ultimately, 
absolutely should get back together to work on something. And I think, oh, leave them alone. They, they don't want to do it. You know, I mean, it would be very nice for the fans to to witness that. But I, I think if, if the individuals as professionals don't want to do that, I think fair play to them. I, I think I'd feel awful as a fan to think that people were doing something under kind of duress. That I don't think that would be nice for them. And then in terms of the books then, I mean, you, you've written a few based on the albums themselves, but you've got a new one coming out very, very soon, haven't you? Jethro Tull Chronicles. We're talking from their early days through to kind of towards the end of the 70s. So tell us a little bit about what's going to be involved in this book. So it's really meaty. Um, it's actually, in terms of the word count, it's actually the longest one I've done. And the reason for that is that it covers um, a long time span. So from, you know, from them getting together in 1967 um, to like the fade out of 1979. So kind of just sort of post Stormwatch really and um, the reason the book's so expansive is because you know there there were lots of lineup changes um, there were but musically, they, they always stayed on top, really. Not necessarily commercially, um, but in terms of, you know, I mean, they released an album for every year of the 70s. Um, so really, the book is a celebration and a document of everything they've done. So I've gone into lots of detail about, you know, what the feeling was in the band at the time. Um, and I've used... Um, all vintage resources because I think it's very easy to look at these things with a revisionist um, lens and sort of think oh well we all know blah 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 but you know when you look back at the time the bands might have had different feelings about what they were working on so for example um, when a passion play was slated very badly by the music press at the time um, it comes across that it was quite a surprise to Ian Anderson I mean they were under pressure because they had to follow up from Thick as a Brick, which was a huge success. But, you know, all the same, I I think the mood at the time is often very different to how people look at things with hindsight. Absolutely. And you talk about going back to to the the time itself to to get all the information for it. And it features vintage gig reviews and album reviews, as you mentioned. It's this contemporary quotes from the band members. There's rare adverts. There's there's countless photos as well. Some of them unpublished. So you you really have gone back and and dug as deep as you can, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, Weimer, the publisher, they've they've been fantastic um, in sourcing never before printed photographs so um the book's going to be you know it's an unofficial thing but it's going to be a real pleasure um for any Jethro Toll fan to look at really it's got lots of um new and interesting content <laughs> and that's due out on the end of March is that right it is March the 20 something <laughs> it's the 20 I know it's the 20 something <laughs> <laughs> lovely we'll put March the 20 something in our diaries Laura it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and uh, best of luck with everything going forward thank you it's been real nice to talk to you thank you And if you're a big fan of Jethro Tull, then you're going to want to check out this new book. To reiterate, it's called Jethro Tull Chronicles, 1967-79. to Described as a mammoth A4 hardback book. Now, I preferred the hardback books. I don't know about you. It looks nicer in the bookshelf. This book chronicles Jethro Tull's career from the outset to the end of the 70s, featuring vintage gig and album reviews, contemporary quotes from band members, rare advertisements documenting how they were billed alongside their peers, and much more as well. Well, available at the end of March, we're going to say. I can't find the exact date, but 
as we heard Laura say, at the end of March, sort of some time-ish, 20-something-ish. So check out your bookshop online uh, or go into the shop itself and, and purchase something in person. It's always lovely to do that. And so to the main man himself then on the programme, Ian Anderson, born in Scotland, in Dunfermline, I believe. He moved to England when he was about 11 or 12. Music was always a passion and legend has it he ditched his dream of being a guitar hero because he said he'd never be as good as Eric Clapton. So he went with the flute and hadn't actually been playing the flute all that long, just a matter of months before recording the very first Jethro Tull album this was. The switch to flute was inspired and he remains arguably the best known flute rock player in the world, although he's not the only rock flautist we've had on the show. If that's your thing, please do go and check out the great interview I did on episode 20 with Tice Van Leer from Dutch band Focus. Fantastic musicians. Anyway, Jethro Tull, they became a real force in the world of music. At times, hard to pigeonhole. They are progressive rock, they are folk rock, they are progressive folk. There's blues and jazz infusions. They went a little bit electronica as well at one stage, and obviously huge helpings of thick, heavy rock mixed in too. Now, Rolling Stone magazine described them as one of the most commercially successful and eccentric progressive rock bands. From their debut album in 1967 through to the end of the 70s, they did have huge commercial success with five top 10 albums in the UK, including Stand Up, which was a number one album. And in America, they had two number one albums, Passion Play and Thick as a Brick, with the utterly brilliant Aqualung not actually getting to the top spot, but going on to be certified three times platinum. Wow. They also won a Grammy Award too. Now, the much publicised and often used as a punchline to jokes after winning the best hard rock metal Grammy in a year when it looked nailed on that Metallica would win it. So much so that Ian has explained previously that Tull's management didn't even bother paying for them to attend the ceremony as they felt there was no chance they could possibly win. So on to the Zealot Gene then. It's the brand new Jethro Tull album, which is set for release on Friday the 28th of January. It's the first studio album for a number of years and it sparked a bit of friendly debate, which is a polite way of putting it among the uh, Jethro Tull fans online about the use of the band's name given the lack of involvement of Martin Barr, the band's incredible guitar player from 1968 until 2014 when Ian decided at that point to call it a day on the band. Now some say it should be an Ian Anderson album but that can be debated amongst yourselves. Now, this interview took place a couple of days before Christmas, so his references to January the 1st aren't in error. This interview was conducted about a month ago, just to put it in a bit of context for you. Anyway, it is a fascinating interview, so here you go. Me in conversation with Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson. Okay then, Ian, let's start with the Cellar Gene. I mean, it's been a long time in the works, hasn't it? You began putting down the ideas for this originally in, what, 2016, 2017 or so? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, we in 2017, we recorded, we did five days rehearsal and recorded four tracks. And then it all got put aside because we were on tour for quite a while. And, uh, you know, I completed those first four tracks. But then the the, the rest of it, due to, pressure of tours, you know, only being home for maybe two or three days between tours, really. I just kept putting off um, going back in the studio again because of time constraints. And then suddenly the pandemic was on us and and um, it was not really possible for us to, to work together um, pre-vaccination and uh, at times of lockdown. So um, it didn't get finished until this year when I finally decided I would just have to get on and do the last five songs myself at home and um and get the album done which it was um um i guess may 
early June when I finally finished it and then mixed it and mastered it and delivered to one of the six record companies we've been talking to. Absolutely. Now tell us about the album itself then. I mean, you've released a couple of videos from it, from a few of the songs from the record. Now, what can we expect from the album as a whole in terms of musically and thematically then? Well, in terms of the album itself, it began with the the notion of writing a series of songs about extreme emotions. And I I decided to start that off on day one of working on a, a new project. I wrote down a list one word, one word list of um, of, uh, of strong emotions. I, I, you know, some nice things like compassion, loyalty, companionship, um, um, love, spiritual love, brotherly love, erotic love. I, I, you know, wrote down some nice things, and then I wrote down a bunch of the bad stuff, like like hatred, anger, retribution, vengeance, jealousy, rage. You know, this, this, so I looked at my list of single words and it occurred to me that I, I recall those featuring prominently in the Bible. And so I decided to do a big Bible search of examples of biblical texts that incorporated those, those, uh, those one-word pointers and then I copied and pasted a lot of biblical text, put it into a document, had it sitting on one side of my computer screen as a, as a reference when it came to writing songs. I didn't use any biblical text in any of the songs. I simply took the essence of some of that and decided to try and put that into songs that were in the present day, in a, in a real-world scenario, not, not in a historical biblical context. Although there was one song that probably does really sit in its uh, original time and place. So uh, that was the concept, if you like, was to was to create a, a, a variety of different songs about human emotion. And the title track, The Zealot Gene, was simply one of the songs. I decided, after thinking of a few album titles, to, to, to make it a title track. And um, it seemed to sum up perhaps some of the, the general uh, fanaticism that goes with uh, certain emotions and... I rather thought it would be a, a good example of emotion running high in terms of populism, division in society, and the um, the subject material behind that song. It would be easy to say, oh, he's singing about Donald Trump. But in fact, th- th- there is no one model for that song. It's, it's, uh, it's at least half a dozen people whose names come immediately to mind as uh, populist um, national leaders who, uh, whether they live in a pseudo-democracy or a virtual dictatorship, are, are people who um, I'm thinking of when I'm singing the words of that song. And um, as always, I tend to have something in my head when I'm writing a song. Usually it's a visual image. So I'm, I'm working from uh, memories of photographic images or, or in the case of the biblical references when I read the biblical text, I immediately have a picture in my head. Then I take that picture and then write a piece of music about the picture. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of writing about the, based on the, some of the elements of biblical text, but I'm once removed from it because I'm, I'm tending to take the text and then make my own little kind of movie or my own still image out of something I've read and then write about the, write about that image in musical terms. Well, that's kind of the way I worked on this album, but uh, usually I'm not starting off with text. I'm usually starting off with um, with the with the with the visual image, 
Although there have been occasions when I can recall writing about something that I read as text in a newspaper before I saw any visual images associated with it. But, you know, that's that's my way. I'm an observational writer. I tend not to be writing about me and how I feel. You know, I'm not a, an emotional character. I'm a cold fish, and I, I tend to write about other stuff, not about my own emotions so much. A fascinating insight. I love hearing them sort of stories. I mean, we're, we're talking 50-plus years that you've been doing this into the seventh decade, in fact, of, of producing music. I mean, do you still enjoy putting new music down and thinking of new things and ideas and themes for songs? I hope so, because um, uh, in just uh, not, not much more than a week from now, I will be um, preparing to embark at 9 a.m., on the 1st of January 2022 on a new project, as I have done on the last four projects. So I'm, I'm a nine o'clock on the morning on the first day of a new year. That, that's when I think, right, I'm going to start. And so far, so good. You know, by 10 o'clock, I've got a couple of ideas. And hopefully by lunchtime, I'm you know, kind of on the way towards something. And I, I hope I hope this time is no different. <laughs> Not met with um, a total absence of, of uh, either energy or inspiration, but, you know, hopefully it'll come to me. And um, it's quite exciting putting yourself on the spot and making yourself um, go halfway to meeting the muse rather than waiting for her to visit you at a time convenient to her. Fascinating. Now, in terms of the Zealot Gene, then it's it's out on the twenty eighth of January. There's many different formats it's available as well, isn't it? You've got your LPs, your CDs, there's Blu-rays, there's, there's special edition books where there's um, demo ideas and initial ideas, and there's interviews and extra liner notes and everything like that, isn't there? Well, the the, the age in which we live is one defined really by options. Whether you're going to a supermarket to buy a buy a salad or a, a veggie meal or whatever it might be that you're 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 after, you're going to have several options. And and I think that's part of the part of the musical world these days is that we give we give people several different platforms in a way that they can listen to music and and of course physical product in the form of CDs. And uh, and uh, for many people a return to the larger analog format of vinyl. So we're really giving people choice, and I think that's the important thing, that music fans have a, have a choice. And some, of course, will say, well, I, I'm going to get the vinyl album, but I'm actually going to stream it on Spotify as well. So you know, people will quite often not just go with a single way to listen to music, but they will combine a couple of other formats. And then in terms of complexity and price range, you know, we try and do the cheap and cheerful, this the straightforward CD and a, you know, with a 16 page booklet or whatever it is through to a sort of deluxe pack with um, surround sound and Blu-ray, whatever, 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 and a much bigger package of, of books and, um, you know, the original demos and a lot more, mu a lot more information about the making of the album, you know, for those that, those that want the, uh, you know, they want the full nerd version, you know, where they can really embed themselves in, in the trivia and yes. minute eye of detail that's around the making of the record. Uh, I mean, I, I it was in two minds whether to include a lot of that stuff, and I, I discussed it with with a couple of the record companies that um, we, we spoke to in detail, and, you know, they, they, they seem quite keen that, that, that I should put in 
you know, pretty much everything that would that would be there to entertain at least some of the the fans. But you know, for most people, I think they're just going to listen to the music and not really want to get too far behind it in terms of um, either conceptually or in terms of any detail. They just want to listen to, you know, intro, verse, chorus, bridge, guitar solo, flute solo, whatever. And maybe they don't even really listen to the words. They just hear it. But um, I, I think it's nice to be able to to make sure that people have the, uh, the, the text of the lyrics to refer to because some of it, you know, I'm, I, I try. I try to make my diction reasonably good, and but nonetheless, you know, some people, particularly those who don't uh, have English as their native language, you know, might might benefit from having the uh, the lyrics printed, preferably in a font size that suits older eyesight. So we do it um, really, you know, try and provide a, a version of the album that will satisfy most people's uh, preferences. Definitely. Now, the best way to, to, to find out all these details and how you can pre-order is to get onto jethrotoll.com and you can keep up to date with everything that Ian's up to and everything the band's doing. And, and certainly something the band is going to be doing is a big tour across Europe, COVID permitting, in 2022. I think I counted 11 different countries. Um, it's on the back of uh, quite a few dates you did in the UK uh, at the end of 2021 as well. So are you still enjoying going out there and playing the music and you're looking forward to seeing the, the, the fans across Europe? Well, the, the um, yes. I mean, there, there are actually quite a lot more shows that are projected for 2022 that are not necessarily on our website because they're not either they're not contracted or because the promoters are unsure about, um, as you mentioned, the COVID realities impacting upon um, whether or not the, the concerts can go ahead. But you know, I, I have a great deal of insecurity about uh, concerts, generally speaking, at the moment in in uh, many parts of the world. So, I think we just have to, uh, you know, be um, cautiously optimistic until we then are forced to face the uh, the contrary. In terms of the dates that you did in the UK and uh, the last couple of months or so, I mean, did you play the new music? Did that go down well? Well, we've been playing uh, the title track, the Zealot Gene, since. Pre-pandemic, we did a couple of shows in Spain just before <clears throat> the pandemic scuppered everything. Um, that was in February of 2020, and we played it at all the shows we've done since the end of August uh, this year. We've managed to do, I think, 20 shows. Um, you know, we played the title track. Seems to seems to go down well with the audience and um, the reactions to the new album from media that I've spoken to. Either they're being very polite and uh, complimentary. Or they, or they genuinely mean it, but um, we, we'll find out soon enough whether people like it or, or not. And I'm, I'm never actually, I think since the early 70s, I've never been, I've never been expecting approval. It, it's nice if you get it, but you have to realise once you're past your first three or four albums and you're the darlings of the new age, of you've come to fruition in, in the public view, then no longer are you the bee's knees. You're no longer the, the latest thing, and you, you've got to accept that you're going to get your share of of ho-hum or even very negative reviews. It's it's just the way things are. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm never expecting people to like anything that I do, whether it's performing live on stage or releasing a new record. It's just, you know, if people are happy and 
they show their appreciation, then I'm I am delighted if that's the end result. But I don't I don't expect it. You know, it's not a doesn't doesn't come with the territory just because you've sold a few million records, <laughs> played a few thousand concerts. It doesn't mean that everything you do is going to uh, satisfy everybody because it it certainly won't. The inimitable Ian Anderson there, once referred to as the deranged flamingo due to his iconic posture, playing the flute while standing on one leg. It's such an iconic image, isn't it? It's instantly recognisable too, and one that's graced many logos and album covers. Right now, it's the time of Vintage Rock Pod, where I get to give you my top five songs from this week's guest. Now, remember, this is my personal choice. I don't claim it to be a definitive list. It's very subjective. And to be honest, I know that not many people are going to agree with me this week. But hey, it's my my choice of songs and everyone's is going to be different. So here we go to cause a stir. My favourite five songs from Jethro Tull, according to Vintage Rock Pod. Now, my number five was originally a non-album single. It went top ten in the UK in 1969. Its incessant riff rolls over and over and I love its driving rhythm. And number five is Sweet Dream. At four is a song from the Benefit album in 1970. It's the opening track, in fact. It starts fairly low-key, especially vocally, but contains some great Martin Barr guitar licks, and I've always enjoyed the way the song kind of really builds to the ending, especially the dueling flute and guitar. Now, Ian Anderson had previously said that this album was more guitar-orientated given the era it was made in, with Cream, Hendrix and, and Zeppelin around, and it's probably up there with my favourite Tull albums, to be honest. And number four is With You There To Help Me. I'm going back to the ones that I know With whom I can be what I want to be In just one week for the feeling to go And with you there to help me Then it probably will and at number three is one from the Crest of a Knave album from 1987. Although the album has been dubbed their Dire Straits phase, given Ian's vocals on this, this may be one of the reasons why I like it so much. But anyway, this is a 10-minute epic, and for me, it stands up there with the very best the band has produced. It's got a great vocal hook, and I just love it. And number three is Budapest. Two is a song with an opening like no other, menacing both in guitar riff and the opening lyrics. Although it wasn't a single, it still remains one of their very best-known songs. It comes from the 1971 album of the same name. And number two is Aqualung. And at number one for me is another song from Aqualung. And it's probably a controversial, unexpected choice, but I love the heaviness of it. I love the raw, visceral vocals from Ian on this one as well. And the brilliant way it builds with the piano into chugging guitar riffs. So my favourite Jethro Tull song and the number one song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Hymn 43. His cross was rather bloody. 
So there you go, my favourite five songs from Jethro Tull. I can hear the outrage at the omission of Thick as a Brick, but given that the song is basically a whole album, much like Passion Play, I felt I wanted on this occasion to stick to singular tracks, so hey, please don't hate on me. Of course, there were so many others that I could have put in there and perhaps should have put in there. I mean, I missed out things like Locomotive Breath and My God. I mean, I mean you could easily make a case for any of the first ten songs on Aqualung to make that list, but there's other ones as well. Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die, a Heavy Horses, Baker Street Muse, Living in the Past, um, Teacher. Honestly, so many great songs, Minstrel, Songs from the Wood. Um, but I wanted it to be my personal choice, not a critic-style choice. It's the songs that I enjoy listening to the most. So there you go. As ever, though, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the list. Where do you agree or disagree? Drop me an email at vintagerockpot at gmail.com and I'll give you a mention on next week's episode. And another request from me to say, if you haven't already, then please do subscribe to the Vintage Rock Pod channel on YouTube. I'm trying to push it to a thousand subscribers that it activates the kind of monetization policy that YouTube has. Until then, all the ads that play on my videos, YouTube keep the money from them, so it'd be nice if I got a little bit myself. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod clips, subscribe on the channel, it's totally free, it's dead easy to do, you press one button, and I put up a, a lot of different content on there. You obviously get to see the videos of some of these interviews, there is one up there of Ian Anderson talking. I do short stories as well, some of the short rock stories on there, there's the top fives, there's a couple of quizzes from earlier in the series, and other bits and bobs too, so well worth subscribing to. Also, obviously check out the social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all that sort of stuff as well. So there you go, that's it for episode 50 then. Next week's show is going to feature a brilliant interview with someone whose career is incredible, a star of TV, film, Broadway, and of course rock and roll, having had a successful solo career, and worked with the likes of The Clash and Blue Oyster Cult and Meatloaf, so definitely do not miss that one. If this is your first listen, then make sure to follow or subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on whatever podcast platform you use, so you don't miss out new episodes that drop usually every Monday, and please do check out the back catalogue of incredible big name guests I've had on the show, whole host of superstars, multi-million sellers, Grammy Award winners, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, there's so much to enjoy, and they all have great rock stories involving some legends of our beloved rock world, and if prog rock show sort of thing, there's plenty of prog rockers I've interviewed in the past, likes of uh, Steve Hackett's on there, as I said, um, Tice Van Leer's on there, we spoke to Jeff Downs from Yes and Asia and that sort of thing, so plenty for you to get your teeth into. But that's it for me then on this episode. Thank you for taking this Jethro Tull train with me. Check out The Zealot Gene and get ordering Laura's new book, Jethro Tull's Chronicles, until episode 51 then. Remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.